You're listening to audio from the Decidedly Podcast. For more information, find us on Instagram at Decidedly Podcast. Did you watch the World Cup? I watched some of it, but not nearly enough of it. Okay. I'm going to give you an interesting decision-making nugget of wisdom. Oh, here we go. From the World Cup. So... Harry Kane is the striker for England. Okay, you know what striker is? Yeah, this guy that's yeah, supposed sure. to score all the goals. Yeah. He also plays for Tottenham Hotspur, which is a club in England. Okay. And he is, for both Tottenham and for England, he is the designated penalty taker. So when there's a gotcha. foul in the in the goalkeeper's box and they put the ball on the spot, it's one-on-one versus he's, the keeper. He's the guy. He's the guy every time. And he is very... Uh, highly touted for his penalty taking ability. He rarely misses. And the reason why he rarely misses is days before the game, days before the game, he decides if I have a penalty in this game, here's where I'm going to hit it. Here's where I'm going to shoot the ball. So he's got a game on Saturday. On Thursday, he wakes up that morning. He thinks to himself, if I have a penalty on Saturday, I'm going to go low right corner. He envisions it in his mind. He thinks about it. He dreams about it, and he practices it all day Thursday. He goes to sleep thinking about hitting low right corner. He wakes up on Friday thinking low right corner. He goes to practice. He practiced kicking low right corner from the penalty spot all day Friday. He goes to the game. If there's a penalty, he takes it, and he goes low right corner. And he can do that decisively. He's not thinking about it. He doesn't get distracted. He's not intimidated by the goalkeeper. Nobody's going to shake him from that idea. Well. Famously, he had a penalty in the quarterfinal game against France. So England England played played France, and they had an opportunity late in the game for uh, Harry Kane with a penalty shot to tie the game two to two. Mm -hmm. He goes up to take the penalty, and unlike any time before, he hesitated right at the last second based on the reaction of the goalkeeper. He kicked the ball. And the ball flew completely over the net, missed it entirely. Goalkeeper didn't even have to make a save. Wow. And it was amazing to me that he had found a decision making. Like he had he had perfected it. He had mm-hmm. perfected, he he eliminated all the distractions. He eliminated second guessing. He focused on creating neural pathways to to make that stroke of his leg unmistakable. And still. He got thrown off by the actions of others in game time. You ever seen the goalkeepers? They'll like launch themselves to the right or launch themselves to the left, like right as the person's kicking it. And and they have to sort of make a decision as the person's kicking the ball because in the pros, unlike when I played, the ball is going so fast, you have no chance to react. You have to already sort of be moving right and hope the person also is kicking right and maybe you'll save. They did a study and found that if the goalkeepers just sit tight stay in the middle. They have a better percentage save than diving in advance of the shot because they can cover more ground. And yet you see them dive all the time. I don't know why they're doing it. I think it's inherent that we feel like we have to decide something. We have to be active and nobody wants to have the shot made on them not having moved, even though it's it's more embarrassing. It's more embarrassing. It's sort of like the study where uh, the granny shot in basketball is actually more effective from the free throw line. But nobody wants to do it because it looks stupid. But, so uh, don't no. be afraid of looking stupid. Take the granny shot. Don't be afraid of getting shown up. Stay in the middle as a goalkeeper. And 
when you make decisions, stick with them like Harry Kane mostly does, except in the quarterfinals against France in 2022 World Cup. Our guest today knows more about sports than neither of us. Warren Rustan joined the podcast today. He was an academic All-American in basketball at the University of Arizona and in 1965 was drafted by the Golden State Warriors. In 1973, Warren was selected to be a White House fellow, was appointed as a special assistant to the Secretary of Commerce, where he co-led the first ever executive level trade mission to the Soviet Union then became a special assistant to then Vice President Gerald Ford, who had stepped in right after Spiro Agnew resigned just before the Watergate scandal started in full force. In 1974, when Vice President Ford became President Ford, he asked Warren to serve as the appointment secretary and cabinet secretary to the president. Following his time in public service, Warren entered the private sector, where he was CEO of 10 companies and served on the board of directors of 50 other organizations. For 30 years, Warren led a public policy conference in Washington, D.C. called Public Policy in the Private Sector. He was global chair of the World President's Organization and is the current Dean of Learning for the Global Leadership Academy of Entrepreneurs Organization, the largest global organization exclusively for entrepreneurs. Warren is easily one of our most accomplished guests we've ever had on the podcast and one of the wisest people I've ever spoken with. We talked about clarity of vision, servant leadership, transactional leadership versus transformational leadership. We talked about his time in the White House, how decisions are made in one of the most impactful environments possible, how some of world leaders move through their process of making decisions. We talked about clarity of vision as it applies to business, but even more importantly, family and how Warren has raised a family that embodies the values that are important to him. Uh, It was really inspiring. I learned a lot. Stick around. You're going to really enjoy this conversation and learn a lot too. I'm Sanger Smith. As always, I'm with my dad, Sean Smith, and this is Decidedly. Hey, Warren, it's great to have you. Thank you very much, Sanger. How are you? I'm doing great. Warren, I mentioned that you have a resume that impresses everybody. I want to know, I want to hear from you a little bit more about how you go from basketball to working from the president to running more companies that you can even count. Let's start at the beginning. Well, listen, uh, first of all, uh, everybody looks good in a resume, right? So, I mean, I'm just like that, right? (laughs) We all look good on paper. I'm not so sure that's true in person, but uh, we'll do the best we can. Look, look, I just had this really interesting life. It's not worse than or better than anybody else's life. It's just a life. And I was born in poverty on an isolated farm in Minnesota near the Canadian border. And we were three miles from the nearest village, which was 150 people, and uh, nine miles from the nearest community of 1,000 people. So we were just out there by ourselves, and we, we ate what we grew, and we'd go, to, we'd go to town once in a while but we were pretty isolated. And so I grew up on this farm, just working hard. And I learned that from my father and my mother and three sisters. So it was an interesting time. My father got better at farming. He bought a second farm. And then he declared to us when I was 12 years old, we were moving to Southern California. So we moved out to Southern California and that was a time when Southern California was booming. He got in real estate development. He did very well for himself and we had a nice family life. When I graduated from college, a bunch of folks came along and said, you know, if you'll play basketball for us, uh, you know, we'll give you a scholarship. And so I thought that was a pretty good deal at free college. That was fantastic. I wasn't very smart, but I could figure that part out. And so I went off to the University of Arizona, turned down some really interesting schools, UCLA and SC and Stanford and others, but uh, 
ended up at Arizona and, and was great. And on the third day I was there, I met this co-ed who was just brilliant and beautiful and spectacular. And I thought she was the love of my life. And so I asked her out and she said, no, I couldn't believe it. I was a great, great looking guy and really chiseled out of granite. I mean, I was fantastic. Right. So she said, no. And I asked her out the second week. She said, no, again, I asked her out the third week. No, again, she, she said, no, 53 consecutive weeks. And being an entrepreneur, I'm pretty persistent. 54th <laughs> week, I heard that uh, the guy she was dating had gone out of town for his parents' wedding anniversary. So I knew that her weekend was open. So I, you know, 54th, I give it a shot. So I asked her out and 54th time, she said no. And finally, like guys do from time to time, we get stupid and I was telling jokes and singing and dancing and trying to make her laugh. And finally she said, don't do this anymore. It's painful. I'll go out to dinner with you. And I said, okay, good. So she went out to dinner with me. And uh, by the time it was 1030 at night, I guess we decided we really didn't need to see anybody else again, that we were just date each other. And we were married two years later while we were juniors at the university. So I got very fortunate. It took her a long time to figure out that I was worth her time. I knew right away she was worth my time, but uh, it took me a long time to convince her. Then we decided to have children, you know, and we got married and we wanted to have a big family. So we decided 15 would be the right number. And uh, 15, because that was my jersey number in basketball. And she also said it was my IQ. So it worked out really well. So as a result of that, we, uh, <laughs> we started on our way and wanted to have babies. And four years into our marriage, we're told it was biologically impossible to have kids. And um, so decided we'd adopt, but we found a young doctor who'd worked on some fertility issues and he put us both in the hospital and checked us out and kept her in a couple of days longer to reconnect the wiring and the plumbing. I don't know what the technical terms are for that stuff, but um, at any rate, so 30 days after being released, we were pregnant with our first child and we went on to have our family. And so it's been a great experience for us. When you go further than that, you go, I got drafted uh, by the Golden State Warriors, um, and so I uh, had an opportunity. Pretty good for a guy who just did basketball to get free school. That's right. I mean, I was just, you know, I dribbled just for the heck of it, but uh, they wanted to actually pay me, which was really interesting. So, and then, you know, from there I became a CEO. I went, actually, what I did was I uh, ended up uh, leaving the Warriors, getting my amateur standing back and ended up uh, playing for the Phillips 66ers and number one amateur team, AAU team in the United States. There wasn't a a D league or a G league or any semi-professional sports at that time. So it was all amateur. So we had a, a spectacular team. We played for the national championship. I then was selected to play in the U S team that went to the world games, world basketball championships in Santiago, Chile and uh, where we won the medal and uh, came back and had a good time and then became the assistant basketball coach at the university of Arizona while I pursued my graduate degree, then became a CEO when I was 24 years old and, um, became a White House fellow when I was 29 in a nationally competitive process. There were several thousand applicants that year. And through an 11-month process, I was one of 17 that was selected to be a White House fellow and ended up in Washington, D.C. Um, I was supposed to work for the vice president. And uh, he resigned. He heard I was coming to Washington and he, the pressure was too great for him. So he resigned. His name was Spiro Agnew. <laughs> that's and, not, that's, they don't tell you that about Spiro no, Agnew. He, he, no, they don't tell you that. You know? They tell other stories about Spiro Agnew, right? Yeah, they and, made a uh, whole So I was a man without charade. a vice president. It's a terrible way to be in Washington, D.C. So I hooked up with the Secretary of Commerce, Fred Dent, and he asked me to lead the executive, first ever executive level trade mission of the Soviet Union. So we took about 15 executives, Pepsi-Cola, Coca-Cola, uh, microdata, IBM, and so forth. Went over there, negotiated trade agreements. When I got back, Gerald Ford, who was minority leader of the House, um, had been named vice president and confirmed by the Senate. And so I knocked on his door, said, I'm your White House fellow. He said, what's a White House fellow? And that's how our relationship started. So I joined him uh, 
when he was vice president. So I spent the last nine months of Watergate in the White House complex with him, which was an unbelievable time, fascinating time, one of the worst it's a pretty in good, American history. So, Pretty then, good question, though. What is a White House fellow? A White House fellow is someone who has shown sort of, it's not an internship, it's not a fellowship of any kind in that sense. It's a, you are hired to make a contribution to the principle that you're serving. And they judge you on your basis to do that. So you have to have demonstrated uh, performance in your life prior that you have committed to very specific uh, efforts in your industry or career and done well at that. And then uh, you're based on, based on your potential to serve in the government for one year at a high level. And uh, so you're not there to, to kind of hang around. You're there to, to work. And uh, you're paid at the highest civil servant level that they can, which is not very much. And so I was hired to do that. And uh, I worked at the Commerce Department for a couple of months, as I said, and then hooked up with the vice president and, and went with him to the White House. And, um, and we had a great time. So a White House fellow, interesting um, how I got there through the fellowship. But I was having lunch one day in Tucson with a retired four-star general. And at the end of the conversation, he said, have you heard of the White House Fellows Program? And I said, no. So he said, well, here's an application. I thought you might want to apply. I put it in my desk drawer, didn't even think about it again. A couple of months later, I was moving from one office to another, looked in my desk drawer, and there it was. It was due the next day by midnight. So I filled it out, wrote an essay, sent it in the mail, never expecting to hear a thing. And then I got, I think three months later, something back from the government that said, congratulations, you're a semi-finalist. I was very surprised. And that went through a process. And um, I was eventually named one of 37 national finalists. And we went to the Airlie House, which is a diplomatic retreat in Virginia. No TVs, no telephones or anything. And the, the White House Fellows Commission, 16-member White House Fellows Commission was there to grill us. They had done a complete FBI field investigation on each of our backgrounds by the time we got there. So they had a lot of information on us. And the chairman was Milton Friedman, who is a pretty good economist from the University of Chicago. And every person on that White House Fellows Commission was a household name. So for a week, they was two on one, five on one, 16 on one, just trying to strip you naked to find out exactly what you knew and whether you could make a contribution. At the end of that week, early in the morning, they're going to march you into an amphitheater ballroom and they're get, and tell you whether you're a White House fellow or not. So I couldn't sleep the night before that. And so I was wandering around. I walked into that ballroom and there were two boxes on the stage. There was one with thin envelopes and in the thin envelope was said, you're a nice person, but you're not a White House fellow. Good luck with the rest of your life. And, and the other one, it was a thick envelope and it said, congratulations, you're a White House fellow. And here are your further instructions. So I found my name on the thin envelope and I had enough time before they came in to change it to a thick envelope. So that's how I was chosen as a White House fellow. So, you know, just learning. <laughs> and nobody noticed. Huh? <laughs> so it was just kind of fun. It was kind of fun. So I ended up on a staff. And uh, then the days of August 6th, 7th, 8th and 9th, came in 1974 when he was informed that he was going to be the president of the United States and Mr. Nixon was resigning and, and we set about making the transition. So it was a very interesting time. Very interesting. Sorry to be so, so what, what was the sense in the, in the white house at that time? I can't imagine the tension that was happening there. Sort of doom and gloom, uh, difficulty for the president, obviously. And he would wander the halls at night. He would isolate himself in his office for, hours, even days at a time without seeing anyone. Um, he would skip appointments, miss appointments. Um, so it was difficult. For the vice president, he had to support the president. He had to support the process. 
I didn't know if he'd ever thought about being president of the United States, meaning Gerald Ford. And then on August 6th, when General Alexander Haig, who was chief of staff for Nixon, came over to our office and said those now famous words that have been written in many books, Mr. Vice President, prepare to be president, because the Supreme Court had released the uh, White House tapes implicating Nixon in a felony cover-up. And so without even thinking about it, he turned his head and said, have the following people here at seven o'clock tomorrow morning for a transition team meeting. He had not only thought about it, he knew exactly who his, his advisors were going to be. And so the next morning at that hour, they convened and the transition began to the presidency. But during the period of Watergate process itself, it was a very difficult time. Tension between the vice president's staff and the president's staff, tension between cabinet members and others. Um, it was just a difficult time. And the president was just under siege every day, every hour of every day. It was major news. And uh, and the, the House committee and the Senate committee were investigating like crazy. And it was just a very difficult time. Learned a lot of great lessons, got to see people perform under extreme pressure. Uh, and those things all stayed with me for a long time. What lessons did you learn? Stay calm. Be rational and reasonable. Don't give in to every um, new comment that's made, every little thing that's said. Realize everyone has an agenda and they're playing out their personal agendas in many ways, whether they're senators or House members or White House staff or, you know, presidents and vice presidents. Everybody had an agenda and trying to find truth in all that was difficult at best. How long did it take you to, to learn that lesson? Oh, my goodness. That's still a lifelong lesson. I'm still learning that. <laughs> I'm not sure I'll ever uh, figure that out. But yeah, it's a lifelong process. I've got to think that, you know, having access to all of that, you were able to witness how Gerald Ford as president was able to make decisions maybe different from vice president. Did you notice any change in, in how he thought about things? Yeah, Sean, that's a good question. As an as a president, uh, you're the decision maker. You're the key executive. As a vice president, you're advisor to the president. And so while his opinion was asked from time to time, he ultimately had to defer on the decision making. So the critical difference is when you're in that seat, knowing that all these big issues come to you, the small issues don't come to the president. The small issues are de dealt with by other people. But the big issues, you're the decision maker. And we would sit in the Roosevelt room or in the cabinet room and we would talk back and forth and we'd give our opinion and all that sort of stuff. And at the end of the meeting, everybody only looked in one direction to the head of the table. They wanted to know what the president was going to do and what he was going to decide. And all of that discussion, all that debate, everything falls on his shoulders. It's a very difficult position to hold. A lot of people make light of it. A lot of people think they could do it easier or better. Um, boy, it's tough. And the decisions you have to make are hard because you know you're going to offend half of the population. Any decision you make is probably going to be unpopular with some. So it's a very challenging position. I admire the people there. I think uh, the people who have been in that office are slow to criticize others who are in that office because they know the burden they carry. And not just the politics of this country, but it's what you get to know about the world through the CIA, through the National Security Agency and others, both electronic and human surveillance. It's what you know about what's going on in the world and the dangers in the world that are ever present every day threatening the United States of America. And um, they're really hard calls that get to be made by the president that the public never knows about. Intelligence calls, decision-making around 
activities that are going on in other countries, um, how we react to that in a quiet, private way is oftentimes deciding for many people in that business. So it's really fascinating. Decisions they get no credit for oftentimes and decisions that might be the absolute best decision they still get criticized for because we, the public, don't know uh, the the context that surrounded that decision. I want to dig more into decisions, uh, specifically White House decisions in a second. Before I get too off track, you made a decision to leave the White House and pursue a private sector career that was extraordinarily successful. Tell me about that. Well, there are a couple of reasons for it. First of all, we had two young sons who had really bad allergies in Washington, D.C., and it affected their health and school and so forth. And that was challenging for us. And so my wife spent about, oh, a third of the time in Arizona and two thirds of the time in Washington, D.C. with our children and family. So that was challenging and difficult. The secondly is I really had a yearning to get back to the private sector. I really enjoy entrepreneurship. I enjoy business as such. And so I really wanted the opportunity to get back. And I'd spent, I'd only gone back there for a year as a White House fellow. That was my commitment. And all of a sudden I'd spent three years back there and I wanted to get back and do some other things. And so that was a driving force in leaving. I left before the end of the administration and, um, and I had hired my college roommate as my successor. And he came in shortly after I got to the White House and was my deputy all those years. And so he succeeded me. So it was an easy, smooth transition. So that was good. But no, it was just a desire to get back to the private sector. And when you're in the public sector like that, you're under scrutiny all the time. Journalists and others can imagine. always are interested in you and what you think and what you do. And um, there's a lot to be said for the private sector and a private life. And with a large family like we had, we felt that was particularly important. So at that point, you had how many of the 15 kids? We had three children when we went back there and we got we had one while we were back there. And then we had uh, uh, two more, three more when we got back. Yeah. I, okay. So yeah, I some, can imagine. Some number like, like that. I can't remember exactly. How many no one's going to hold you to know. <laughs> you lose track <laughs> with that. You got, man, you got 15 birthdays to keep track of. <laughs> that alone. Is <laughs> we, we actually had 15 kids, but we had to thin the herd out over time, you know, so we had to give them away and stuff like that. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So when you were in the private sector, you know, you talked earlier about everybody has an agenda. What was your agenda as a leader, moving from you, I mean, you, we can't even get it all on one page. The amount of companies that you ran, the board of directors positions that you had, what inspired you to make such an impact across so many different companies? Well, probably because I couldn't keep a job. I think that's the first thing, right? So I kept moving around. I think there are three great principles in business, but I think it's true in life as well. I think these three principles apply to everything we do. And I, I think about these three principles all the time. The first is clarity of vision. Where are you going? I think that's one of the most important things that people have to decide. Where am I going with my life? Clarity of vision. Clarity of vision and purpose are similar, okay? The second great principle is certainty of intent. Once I know where I'm going, I have to act with certainty on that intention every day. Otherwise, we don't get to our destination, right? The third is the power of values how we live our life, how we model our behavior, what we believe in, what's at the core of us, what's the essence of who we are as a human being. Once we know that, it allows us to live in a particular way. So clarity of vision, certainty of intent, and the power of values are the three most important principles, I believe, and are foundational to everything that we do. And I really discovered those in the White House. Um, I, I saw people who 
didn't have that foundation, who just moved from one issue to another, one decision to another, one opportunity to another. But I found others who were rock solid and they knew exactly who they were, where they were going and how they were going to get there. And I just found that to be um, attractive, right? Where somebody really understands who they are and where they're going. So those three principles have guided me my whole life. And so as I look at opportunity, I have to have clarity of vision about that opportunity. I have to have certainty of intent. And then I have to have the power of values. And if I have those three things operationalized, then I think you can do almost anything you want to do in life. How are you distinguishing between the clarity of vision and the power of intent or the clarity of certainty intent? Certainty of intent. Certainty yeah. of intent, excuse me. Okay, so the cl- clarity of vision is, is, is where I'm going, right? So that's what I see as my future. So I'm going to walk myself out three to five years into the future. I'm going to plant a flag there. I'm going to taste it, smell it. I'm going to know everything about it. That's where I want to go. The certainty of intent then are the, are the milestones that I have to get or hit in order to get there. That's my plan to get there. The certainty of intent, the actual intentional acts that I have to take to get to that vision. Okay. So let me give you an example. I was having dinner 30 years ago with three mountain climbing friends of mine. And I asked the first mountain climber, what are you going to do? So I'm just going to climb mountains. I love being outdoors. It's great. I said, fine. I asked the second mountain climber, what are you going to do? He said, well, I'd kind of like to try hitting the seven highest mountains on the seven continents. And I said, that's great. I asked the third young man, what are you going to do? He said, I'm going to climb Mount Everest by the time I'm 21. Well, of those three who had the clarity of vision, I would argue it was the third young man who said, I'm going to climb Mount Everest by the time I'm 21. Because once he decided that, that was his vision, it made his certainty of intent easy. What do you have to do then? Well, he had to raise money. He had to choose his climbing partners. He had to get the equipment. He had to decide what route he was going to take to the summit, what time of the year he was going to climb. Everything became easier because it was the milestones he had to hit to get to that vision, to get to the top of Mount Everest, he had to intentionally act in a particular way in a variety of subject matter. So I just think it makes life easier, easier uh, once you decide on where you're going. And I learned that from some of the guys I hung out with in the White House. As we talked about things, it became abundantly clear that those were the three principles. Guys like Bob Gates, Colin Powell, Dick Cheney, Don Rumsfeld, the guys that I got to hang out with, Henry Kissinger, Brent Scowcroft. They ran the government for 40 years, if you think about it. They had huge influence in the government for 40 years uh, because they had clarity of vision, right? Certainty of intent. And I found, I found them to be very honorable men. And I, I got to know them really well. So I hope that answers your question, Sean. There's a differentiation between where I'm going to go and how I'm going to get there. Did you observe either a really strong clarity of vision and certainty of intent in your experiences in the White House or lack of that? Because it would seem like I have seen just from my superficial observation, take, for example, President Trump, it would seem like he had a very clear certainty of intent um, and had some successes and failures that because of other behavioral characteristics around that. Have you seen varying levels of that in your in your interaction? Yes. Either added to or detracted from success? It's a great question. So you think about Dr. Henry Kissinger, who was Secretary of State when I was in the White House. He had a great vision about reproachment with China. He had a great vision about how to end the Vietnam War. He participated directly in all of those negotiations, right? And But he was driven by a vision of what the world was going to become. He knew that the United States 
and China needed to have a relationship. And they were estranged at that period of time, coming out of World War II. And so he had a great vision of how to put that together. Geopolitically, I would think he's a, he's a genius in many ways. And then he brought the president along. He brought other people along into that vision to allow it to happen. And he was particularly good at that. Now, the specific minute details of that, the intentionality of it, he may not have been as good at that. And he had some other people who did that really well. General Brent Scowcroft, for example, who put together the piece, puzzle pieces to make it all work. But, but the, the genius of the vision was really his. And, and that's, that's pretty amazing. And so I think we see that from time to time. In the example of President Trump, I don't disagree with you that he may have certainty of intent. I would question philosophically what his vision was, right? And where he was, was there some big, huge outcome that he wanted? Perhaps there was, it just wasn't as clear to me. And maybe I'm a poor student, but it just wasn't as clear to me. So I think, yes, your point, Sean, is there are people who are stronger at different parts of it. And there are people who can only do one or two parts of it, not all of it. I I would argue that every president that's successfully elected has a very clear vision and that's what we're voting on, right? Yeah. Some people are going to vote on uh, the personality or who's taller or whatever, you know, there's, there's always some stat every four years. About, Who do you want to have a beer the, with? Yeah. The, the, you know, these, these weird stats about these people that influence electability, but that the vision, uh, you know, I think it depends on who you ask, what, what side of the political aisle someone is. If you ask them what the vision was, they might characterize it a little bit differently, but, but we all know what the, what that vision was with Trump. Um, there's a di- there's got to be a difference though with vision and a clear goal, right? So a clear goal is very important. I'm going to climb Mount Everest by the age of 21. So uh, the classic smart goal approach, I want it to be specific, measurable, achievable, relevant, and time based. If it's not those five categories, it's not clear. It's not smart. Um, it's not going to motivate action in the supreme way that a goal could. That's different than a vision, right? So a vision, and when you talk about Henry Kissinger and his his vision, or um, Trump, Trump's vision, I think for how he was going to approach the country, um, what he would do for, he had very clear vision for working class Americans, for manufacturing, for the way that we would be perceived in the world. Goals are a tool to implement that vision. So I guess I'm asking, was what's your in your perspective, the difference between someone who's motivated exclusively by a clear goal, like I want to climb Mount Everest by 21, and someone who's motivated by a clear or the clearest possible vision. Yeah. So I think it'd be interesting to, let's use some people that we watch every day. Could you tell me what Jeff Bezos goal is for Amazon? Could you tell me what Elon Musk's goal is or vision is for Twitter? Could you I tell, tell me you what, what their visions are? I think their visions yeah. are unclear, and I don't think they're well known. I think they're very private. I don't think we have any idea what Musk's uh, vision for Twitter is or for his empire. Um, well, I know I what think, he says. Well, okay, but but, <laughs> but if but I if action, I take right? what he says right and say, would you consider Tesla a vision? Oh, would for sure. Con- yeah, would you consider going into outer space a vision? Absolutely. SpaceX has a yeah. Go to Mars. But I, but I think I don't think it's clear yet. Uh, it may be soon, but it's not to me. I'm just saying to me, it's not clear yet as I read and watch uh, Elon Musk what his what Twitter's going to become. 
Okay, so well, I mean, he he's wanting to come in there and, and a, he has said to make it a more open platform. Would that qualify as a vision to you, or is that more of a, a goal? I mean, that that was an objective is to, a vision. to to open yeah, it up. Yeah, it's an it's an objective. I think the vision for Twitter has to be much broader than that. Yeah, uh, because you you could make the argument that based on what he's done in the last two weeks, it's not an open platform. Right. right. And that, I think that's why he's getting so much blowback is yeah. because that seems to contradict what his original position was, which exactly. was to open it up. And then he's coming back yeah. in there and but that shut people down. Miss, a but is it, is, it a platform, is it a platform for free speech, for example? Is that mm-hmm. his vision to create a global platform for free speech? Is that a, that could be a vision potentially? It I seemed don't like it he wanted to indicate that it was. Yeah. Yeah. That's what it seemed like initially. Right. And in the same way he's getting blowback now, he was getting support then when he when he made that statement. Right. So I think it's a little unclear right now. I think it's murky, maybe opaque. I think it'll become clearer as he moves down line, make some other decisions. But what I hear you saying is there's a misalignment of his actions in the stated vision. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And so for us to really understand a vision is to understand the certainty of intent. And that is that Specific acts are designed to get to that vision, right? And you see the consistency of actions that are taken to get to that vision. And so that's a critically important piece. There has to be an alignment. It's heart, mind, body, and soul have to be aligned, right? If you look at right. uh, you look at Maslow's hierarchy of needs, right? And you start with survival and eating and shelter and food and then self-actualization and self-esteem, and you work your way up through the five steps. Maslow was actually writing about in his last few months before his death, about something, a sixth part of the hierarchy, right? Which was transcendence, the notion that there's a higher calling in life. There's a greater purpose in life and that that's the vision. We all have to decide what our greater purpose is, what our higher calling is. And that's true of creating the vision for any one of us. It's and so, so funny, Sanger and I were walking yesterday through the park and having that very conversation about transcendence. Yeah, I, I 100% agree with um, the hierarchy of needs. And it frustrates me a lot in my line of work because the entire industry of financial advice, investment solutions is geared towards goal achievement, which is a self-focused, um, success-oriented pathway. And that is so far from significance and transcendence. Transcendence is the most the, the, the highest calling. Uh, I think it's a lot easier if you already have a higher calling, if you have a higher power in your life that you're aiming towards. Um, that's the foundation of Western religion is what's the, what's the greatest, biggest thing that I can possibly imagine and conceive of. And I'm going to aim towards that thing. And that's the only way to achieve transcendence in my belief. Um, but so many people that they're not even aiming at it. They're, they spend their entire life at, um, at success. I want to be successful. I want to be successful. Maybe they have not even defined success. And that's why I asked that question about the clarity of vision with the young boy who says he wants to climb Mount Everest by age 21. It's a very clear goal. Is it a clear vision in the sense that it's aimed towards transcendence? Maybe, maybe, you know, if and when you talk to him, you, he might share that more, but I think a lot of us are missing that. I think most people are missing that. Uh, and it takes a lot of internal work to figure out what that transcendent focus is. Sanger, it's an excellent point. There's a great book you should read if you haven't read it by David Brooks, New York Times bestselling author called The Second Mountain. And he talks about the two mountains in a person's life. The first mountain is the mountain of acquisition. And we're all engaged yeah. in that at different times. It's material wealth. It's being selfish. It's, being, it's branding. 
It's, it's climbing the mountain of success. And we're all guilty of that in some ways, in different ways, at different times in our life, I assume. And so that's, that's a selfish kind of indulgence that we go through. The second mountain, and there's a river between the two mountains that you have to negotiate to get across, but you get to that second mountain, it's, not the, it's no longer the mountain of acquisition, it's the mountain of contribution. And the mountain contribution is about being selfless, not selfish. It's about being cause-driven not self-driven. It's not about your personal branding. It's about other people, right? And at the top of that mountain is transcendence. Once we lose ourselves in service to others, once we give away everything of ourselves and subordinate our interests to the interests of others, then we have a chance to achieve transcendence. And that's really the alignment of heart, mind, body, and soul that we have to have. That's what Maslow was talking about. That's what David Brooks was talking about. There's this notion of transcendence which is the higher calling, the greater purpose in life. And it's, all, it's different for all of us. It was different for Nelson Mandela than it was for Mother Teresa. Okay. And so we have difference, differences in that higher calling, but it's needed to bring us to the point of giving all of what we have to give. Yeah, and there's, there's not another only good one book. way to do it. No, that's right. There are many ways to do it. There are many ways to find that higher calling. And I'm glad there are, we, we all don't want to be doing the same thing. Exactly. There's a book also that if you want to read on leadership, probably the greatest book ever written on leadership. And the title of the book is Leadership. It was written by James McGregor Burns. And in there, he describes the difference between transformational leadership and transactional leadership. Transactional leadership are those hundred things that we do every day that people watch us and they think we're a leader. Transformational leadership is to bring that which lies unconscious in the human spirit to a con- conscious level. So if you were to think historically, who would fit into that, that sort of ballpark, right? Well, I, we've named two of them, Nelson Mandela, transactional, or I mean, transformational, Mother Teresa, transformational, Martin Luther King, perhaps, Ronald Reagan, perhaps, yeah, Winston be- Churchill during Winston Churchill during World War II, especially, but particularly like before the war, thrown out of office after the war. But during the war, he was brilliant, right? Brilliant. So if you think about those historical figures, FDR to some would be that kind of person. Um, those people who have really transformed themselves and the world um, have made a difference in that way. Th- those are people who are in that second mountain, right? The higher calling the selflessness, the commitment to cause, those kinds of things. So I I think we have a lot of examples out there that we can follow that help us in our own individual lives do better. And we all are failed people in many ways. What do you think it is that makes someone truly a transformational leader? I don't think, maybe you disagree, I don't think that it's only the lasting impact. Right. There are some people who are transactional leaders that do have some sort of lasting impact. Maybe it doesn't last very long. Maybe it's not a great impact, uh, but it lasts beyond their lifetime or beyond the, the lifetime of their work. And then, But all of the transformational leaders have transformational impact that lasts beyond their lifetime. So it's not only the, the outcome, right? It's something that they're doing during their work. Yeah, I think first, first it is that they transform those with whom they share the journey. If you think about Gandhi, he was upset because the price of salt had been changed in India. And as a young lawyer, he decided to protest. And he put on his robe and his sandals and got his staff and started walking down the road and protest. There was no one following him at that point in time. But as he told his story, he began to transform people. 
right? By the time he ended his walk 247 miles later, there were a million people supporting him. He was invited to parliament to speak. He spoke for three hours without notes. When he left and walked through the doors, journalists wanted to know, how can you speak so articulately, so brilliantly with no notes? He said, what I say is what I believe, and what I believe is how I act. Mm. He had a great vision of his work and who he was. What happened after that, what followed after that was Great Britain ultimately gave up its ruling in India and India became a free nation, right? So there were huge impacts of what he did from one man walking down the street. But what he did, I think, Sanger, is that he elevated the feeling of people to such an extent they became engaged in the cause and the cause itself changed the world. And I think that can be said of a lot of people. Mother Teresa and building nunneries around the world and serving others, right? Just serving others. I mean, we worked in, my wife and I worked in Mother Teresa's char- charities in Calcutta. Um, so, I mean, those kinds of things. You know, Nelson Mandela went from prison to presidency. And if you ask him, as I did, what made you change? What made you change from someone fighting against apartheid in the streets of Cape Town and Johannesburg in, after 27 and a half years in prison, what made you change? And he'll tell you it was a poem. Of course, I wanted to know what's the name of the poem. The name of the poem is Invictus by William Hensworth. I mean, it was one of the great poems ever written. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. The last two phrases in there, which he said after 21 years in prison in Robben Island, he realized he was accountable and responsible for his own actions. And only when he took accountability did he become the person he wanted to be? So I think yeah, there's so a I, lot of nuances and subtleties to all of that. And I apologize for being long. No, no, that, that's perfect. I, I actually went to Robin Island uh, earlier this year and uh, we went to the, the cell where he, where he was. Yeah. And I, I can't help but come away from that experience uh, only slightly changed. If, had I been there 21 years, I would have been massively changed. And my guess is yes. that he was as well moving from, uh, you know, evidence suggests that he did. And, that vision of, of independence and that vision of ending apartheid it, it was with him the whole time. Yeah. I talk with so many people that it, when we look at success, and I, th- I think you go from success to significance to transcendence, and a lot of the, I think the ability of somebody to move through those levels depends on how they're defining success. I'll ask that question to people. How do you define success? And I asked it this week and got some different answers from people. One was just purely in the worst answer you got. It wasn't the worst, but it was monetarily defined. Right. Uh, I want to have, I want to have this much. I want to make this much money. Right. And the, the, that's an incomplete, it's not a bad answer. It's an incomplete answer. It's an incomplete answer because I I went on to ask, well, what, what was important about having that to that person? We, we eventually got there. But uh, the best answer I got was being able to be my authentic self. Having being the freedom get, to be myself. Yeah. yeah. And I was like, well, that, I don't know if it gets any better than that. Do you find, Warren, that people struggle with how they're defining success and that that hinders their ability to move to significance and then on to transcendence? Yeah, I think it's sort of a cornerstone definition that you have to get and have to feel, right? You have to live. Um, and I think that once you feel that and get that, then you can move beyond that right, to significance. Um, But I think that it's very difficult and hard. Many people get so caught up in the world and so caught up in the day-to-day that they don't pause to look 
beyond that, and therefore they have trouble understanding their vision of success and where they're going. And um, I think everyone needs to try to define that for themselves. And it's very different for people, very different, depending on circumstances. And all too often we decide it's decided monetarily. All too often it's about mm -hmm. what do I have as opposed to who I am. I think who I am is infinitely more important than what I have. So I think that I think there's a, an interesting way of thinking about that. And uh, yeah, I I'm think glad you're asking the question to people because I think you get a lot of different answers. Yeah. A lot of people don't know how to answer that question. You know what I That's am. That's right. I think in the same way, Sean, I ask people, I teach leadership a lot and, and, um, and I ask them define leadership for me. Everybody uses the word a lot, leader and leadership, but to define that is different. And, and what is it exactly and precisely? And even as I go to experts, Bill Gates, John Maxwell, right? Um, John Quincy Adams, Peter Drucker, they all have very different definitions of leadership. And uh, so what's our own leadership definition, which is interesting, right? How do you define you it? You made it sound like you talked to John Quincy Adams. <laughs> For a second, I was like, no, I don't. Yeah, he's not that old. Uh, yeah. I'm, the only guy on this, I'm the only guy on this call who's old enough to have talked to John Quincy Adams. Okay. <laughs> he was my personal friend. I just want you to know that. <laughs> now let's talk about George Washington. He was a heck of a guy. <laughs> now you're pulling our leg. Now yeah, we know nah, you didn't talk to nah, George Washington. Joking. <laughs> so, so the answer to the question for you, what is leadership to me? It's the, it's a social process which maximizes and inspires the efforts of others toward the achievement of a common good. I like that. Mm -hmm. Can you say that again? It's a social process which maximizes and inspires other people and the efforts of other people toward the achievement of a common good. So it's got different pieces to it. One, I think it's a social process. We have to influence other people. It's inherently interactive, right? Yeah. Secondly, we have to maximize their efforts and we have to inspire them. I think that's what leadership about is also. And it's not just us, but it's about other people. In the achievement, I think, you know, leadership is about achieving. It's in the achievement of a greater good. And that greater good gets defined by whoever is in that equation, right? We all define it differently, perhaps. I, I like the addition of the greater good component because I had always looked at it as, you know, a leader, somebody who takes me to a place I wouldn't have gone otherwise. Yeah. Um, yeah. It, the the problem I have with that definition is is that there are a lot of good leaders of by places. that. Yeah, I mean, young. you know, Charles yeah. Manson would be a good leader, uh, by that I, definition, by that definition. Yeah. Right. And so I, I, I think it's important to add that, uh, you know, worthy cause, uh, component. <laughs> but yeah. So, so let me dif disagree with the, the, the Manson. You could argue that Hitler was, you know, right. Leadership, the term leadership is neutral. Only the person applying it decides whether it's good or bad. So Hitler was a great leader for bad. Right. Okay. Manson was a great leader of his gang for bad. So they didn't achieve the greater good. Right. And I'm not so sure they maximized and inspired others. Well, uh, by using your definition of, of towards a greater good, towards a common good, uh, then I can't characterize either of those men as great leaders because they didn't achieve the good. Uh, yeah. And I'm unwilling to live in a world where we have subjective morality. So I'm going to go ahead and say that. Yep. Hitler was yeah. unequivocally bad. Don't, yeah, uh, don't disagree. As, as Norm Macdonald says, the more, <laughs> the more I learn about the guy, the less I like yeah. him, right? Yeah. 
So yeah, that's right. <laughs> I, the um, one of the cool things about our conversation about vision is that you live this idea so much. You've talked. I've heard you talk a couple of times to groups of entrepreneurs, and you talk about the the vision conversations that you have with your whole family. How did you start doing that? Yeah, we started really young uh, with our children. We, we, my wife and I spent those four years when we couldn't have children thinking about our vision for our family and, uh, and what we wanted to achieve with our family, how we were going to raise our children, where we were going to raise our children. We knew, for instance, that we would always live on a farm. And we had hoped that the three generations would live together, but that wasn't a requirement. It was just something we had hoped for. But we started talking about those things when the children were three, four, five, six, seven, eight, in the same way that we told our children they would never inherit any money from us. We would never be in business together. That the world is about making it on your own and proving your worth and finding your own higher calling. And so we started talking with them about and using those kinds of words when they were quite young. And so it became very second nature to them. We, we also suggested that to be a global citizen, you need to live abroad. You need to speak more than one language, right? You need to, uh, you need to absorb and take advantage of other cultures, ethnicities, religions. We need to study other people. So all of our children, when they turned 18, lived abroad for two years. And the only thing they could do was to learn and to serve the poor. And so they did that for two years. And when they came back and went to universities, they were spectacularly purposeful, very dedicated. And you know what? Money didn't mean any difference to them. Even though today, four of the seven are CEOs of thriving businesses, doing really well. They've all had high achievement, but um, but that wasn't the most important thing. Money has never been the most important thing in our lives. We don't talk about business at home. I don't take business calls at home. Um, it's not a part of our life. We just don't talk about it. We don't talk about material wealth. It's just not something we do. So it's not been a part of our life in that way. Well, I'm, I'm certain you talk about vision and I mean, don't you talk about business in terms of how the philosophy of business, you know, advances better causes and those types of things? Yes. Yeah. Yes. We, we talk about the role of the private sector and the importance of the private sector and what it can contribute, how good it can be. We often get caught up about abusing the private sector for its excess or whatever mistakes we make in the private sector. The fact is the private sector is hugely, hugely important in the good that goes on in the world. The wealth that's created can be used in so many ways to benefit others. And I don't know about you, but next Sunday, Christmas day, you know, we've adopted 23 families and we're going to be out serving those families. We started a homeless program here in the city of Tucson that is going to serve thousands of meals on Sunday. Um, those are just the things we need to be doing. Tell me, tell me more about some of the, uh, volunteer work you've done. I, I, you and I talked a little bit before about some of your, your real passion around helping some of the homeless community in, in the area and those types of things. Yeah. Since I've been, since I graduated from the university and my wife is even more involved than I am, but, uh, we've just felt a passion and need <clears throat> to be involved with not-for-profits and to be involved with good causes. Uh, one, because it gives us joy and happiness and, and makes us feel really good. And uh, there was a book written in 1903 by Robert Greenleaf. And that was the very first time that the term servant leadership was ever written anywhere. And he wrote about servant leadership. And so the question is, what is servant leadership? And it's the ability to subordinate our own interests to the interests of others. And so we've had a chance to do that through many not-for-profits, mental health, physical health, homeless 
um, women's shelters, children's shelters, uh, abused children and women and so forth, all those kinds of things we support. My wife is leading a literacy program for future U.S. citizens now and helping them. So those kinds of things have just been natural for us and it's been fun to do. And we've taken our children with us when we do that. And so if we're going down to the men's homeless shelter here in Tucson and we're going to serve meals to 270 men, we take all of our children down there with us when they were young. We take our grandchildren now. So they get accustomed to having conversations, to seeing other things going on in life, to understand inequality exists in the world. The world's not fair in any way, right? And this notion that they have to learn that and understand that and then decide what they're going to do about that. And so we've, we've always done that. We've always had fun doing that. We've made great friends and associations during a period of time. And hopefully we've done a little good here and there. You know, do you do you mind telling that story you were telling me about coming across the guy that was in front of the store sitting there? Uh, oh, yeah. So there was a young man. I, when I work out, I go to the same convenience store to get Gatorade after I work out. And so there was a young man one day sitting there, light blue jeans, white T-shirt, long blonde hair, piercing blue eyes. Everything he owned was in a bag, clearly homeless. Every day I went back, he was there. And so I would buy him something and I'd offer it to him. And he would always hold up his hand and say, no. Um, and, uh, he never took anything that I gave him and, uh, he was there for months, 15, 16 hours a day, he lived under a bridge, 150 yards from the convenience store. And, uh, then one day I went there and he was gone and I asked the clerks inside, where did he go? And he said, well, I don't know. There was a, a woman that kind of started talking to him and she was middle-aged and they seemed to get along. And then there was a young man who came in and he talked to him and and they got along really well and they laughed a lot and had fun. And then one day they both got in the young man's car and drove away and we've never seen him since. So I was curious about that, but I continued going back for my Gatorade. And one day I reached in for my Gatorade and something moved to my left. I looked to my left and there was a, there were those piercing blue eyes that I'd seen on that young man out front. But he was dressed differently. He had a three-piece suit on a white shirt and a tie, wingtip shoes, hair was cut. And I said, I think I know you. And he said, yes, I didn't treat you very well. And I said, well, that's okay. Just, I'm interested in your story. Tell me your story. So well, I didn't treat you well because my father used to beat me and I don't like adult men and I didn't like adult men. And so I couldn't talk to you. He said, but then a, a middle-aged woman came in one day and started talking to me. And she reminded me of my mom. She just loved me for who I was. And she talked to me and helped me. And when the winter came on, she got me warm clothes and a zero sub-zero sleeping bag and, and just helped me through the winter. And then a young man came in and, and he started talking to me and this young man, was just, he was just my age and we could talk and he was so nice to me. And one day he said to me, I think I know some people that can help you if you're interested in being helped. And I was just at that point where I needed help. And so I got in the car with him and he drove me to a mental health facility where psychologists and psychiatrists and caseworkers began to peel back the layers of my life. And in that process, I discovered that I was okay and could get help and it took months and months and years to do that. But um, but I'm okay now and I'm feeling good. And I said, well, what are you doing? He said, well, I'm working at a big company here in Tucson and I'm getting married in a couple of months. I work in the HR department. I said, that's fantastic. What a great story. And so I was so excited to tell our family when I went home about this huge turnaround in this person's life and what a great story it was. And it became obvious to me as I told the story with my family that that middle-aged woman, curly-haired, great lady was my wife. And the young man was our son. When when you realize I that, have, I think we have to teach service. And I think yeah. when we teach service, yeah. the people we teach by our example go out and serve. And I think that's important for us. 
that had to be one of the most rewarding validations of your focus on that vision, right? Um, yes. I mean, there, nothing says nothing says successful servant leadership more than instilling those values in others and seeing them go out and and live them uh, and have that impact that, that you were hoping that they would. No, it's like it's like what you're doing, uh, right? You've got to you've got to live the example. You've got to model the behavior that you want, and we do that as fathers, as leaders. We do it in business. We do it in our communities, right? And we have to model that behavior if we want others to follow. And that's the essence of leadership, it seems to me. And uh, while we all fall short, we all make mistakes. Golly, I've made huge mistakes in my life and I've tried to recover. I've asked for forgiveness. I've, I've done everything I can to recover from those mistakes, but that's the human condition. We're here to make mistakes and we will make mistakes. And our drive is to be the best person we can be. And so I think that serving others is the way we do that. And I think that's what our lives should be about. And you all are doing it with your podcast. You're serving others. I, I admire that. I think that's fantastic. What you do to help people through the teaching and the interviews and the things that you do, really significant. And you have a big, big shadow that you're casting. And I think that's important. And I think it's important for each of us to step up and say, how can we serve? If it's just one person, right? Let's just do that. Let's start there. And I've been fortunate in my lifetime and our family's been fortunate. All of us in our family have been fortunate to do that. And uh, we get to do it again over the Christmas holidays. I'm, I'm excited about that. That's really high praise coming from you. And I think you answered the question that I was about to ask, which is when you have, um, you've, you've shared two really wise thoughts with us today. One is that clarity of vision is critical to the human existence. And then two is that transcendence is the highest aim. Right. And so my question was, how do I make sure that I have a vision that is inherently transcendent? Right. Because you could have a very clear vision that's not the best vision you could ever come up with. And mm-hmm. serving others, I think that that's the answer to that. If your vision ultimately at the end of it focuses externally, focuses on the betterment of other people's lives, uh, then you will be aimed at least towards transcendence. Yeah. Excellent statement. And I think all of us need to have a personal vision statement and know what that is. Mine, for example, is before I've had it for 40, 45 years to improve the human condition wherever I find it. So I accept people from where they are, wherever they are in life. That's okay. Now let's try to improve that human condition. Let's do what we can to make it better for them. And so that's my personal statement. So that's led us to be in the healthcare business a lot, right? Because we can improve the human condition. It's helped me to stop and respect homeless people, wherever they are, they're just human beings. And sometimes we treat them as if they're invisible, right? We don't want to recognize them. We don't want to understand that they're just another human being in a different part of life and that we need to be a respecter of persons um, and acknowledge them. And I think sometimes we, oh, we think they're drug addicts. We think they're alcoholics. Oh, they have mental health issues. Yep. And a big percentage of that population do about 70%. But there are a lot of people out there, too, trying to make it to the next part of their life. And they need, they need a, a hand up. And when we make it in our lives, our job is to reach to others to give them that hand up. And I think we have a real duty and obligation to do that. You inspired me with that. And I know that you inspired our listeners with that. Hopefully, if we can all just focus today on serving others um, even for one day, that would be an incredible upgrade from what most of us, me included, are doing right now. 
Thank you so much for being here, Warren. I, I learned so much. You imparted a lot of wisdom on me. I'm very thankful for that and thankful for your time. Yeah. Warren, it's great to see you again. Sean and Sanger, thank you so much for what you do. You're helping a whole bunch of people and we appreciate that and admire you for that. As I said earlier, keep doing what you're doing. Just do it really well like you are and you'll have an enormous influence. So thanks a bunch. Really appreciate being with you. Where can people find access to charities you work with and uh, foundation and those types of things? Yeah, probably email is best. W Rustand, R-U-S-T-A-N-D at summit, S-U-M-M-I-T, capital, C-A-P-I-T-A-L dot group, G-R-O-U-P. And I'll be happy to respond. Great. Thanks a lot. My takeaway from our discussion with Warren is those three principles that he talked about, having clarity of vision and purpose, having certainty of intent, and then having the the power of values, which we've talked about values a lot. That was my takeaway in having those three things informing the decisions you make. I really liked what he had to say about transactional leadership versus transformational leadership. I think it's a, a lot like our focus on significance in that transactional leadership is going to be inherently or most of the time inwardly focused. Transformational leadership necessarily has to be externally focused. I can't elicit a true transformation in those for whom I'm responsible by focusing on on myself and what I want. I'm focusing on what I'm going to get today or this week or this month or this quarter or this year. Transformational leadership has to be motivated by a common good. I think Warren is a great example of a transformational leader. You just made a great decision to listen to this episode of Decidedly. Make another great decision and leave us a five-star review wherever you listen to podcasts. We appreciate your support. It helps others find our community and defeat bad decision-making in their own lives. For more daily decision-making insights, check us out at decidedlypodcast.com and on Facebook and Instagram at decidedlypodcast. Thanks again for listening. I'm Sanger Smith, and this is Decidedly. Insights, advice, and comments provided by Sean Smith, Sanger Smith, and speakers identified as part of the Decidedly Podcast should not be considered recommendations. Speakers not identified as members of Decidedly are expressing their opinion, and their statements should not be construed as reflecting the views of the Decidedly team. This podcast is produced solely for informational purposes, not personalized advice.